Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in the springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Grace be with you all. Hey, a few years ago, um, uh, I had a little incident on Wiggum Dairy Road. Um, my car broke down, and I was very close to the mechanic that I used there. And actually, uh, Lee Lawrence was coming by, and he stopped to help me. And d during this time, we realized that the car would not maintain, it wouldn't run, it wouldn't keep moving unless I had something hooked up to the battery charger. I have no idea why that was the case, but anyway, we had to, he had a little uh, cordless charger that we could hook up to the battery, and as long as that was hooked up, we could run the car down the road toward the mechanic, only about a mile away. And so I thought, you know, instead of calling a wrecker, instead of trying to get my car towed here, that'd be a waste of money. I'm just going to um, put this thing under the hood, keep it there, and, and drive real careful and slow down Wiggum Dairy Road until I get to the mechanic. Great idea, right? So just crack the hood slightly, battery charger on there, car running fine, going nice and slow, getting confident, going a little bit faster and realize, you know, hey, you know, there's a lot of cars piling up behind me. I'll just go a little bit faster. And so I, I started going a little bit faster, semi coming right toward me instantly. Like as soon as I got to about 35 miles an hour, the hood just whoosh, opens up right in front of the windshield. Total blindness, total blindness. And the semis come by. I just slam on the brakes, hoping I'm maintaining my lane. The hood falls back down. The windshield is shattered. Fortunately, the truck goes by me, and I'm unscathed. And that was a scary incident because, you know, I thought, I've, it's only going to be cracked a little bit. It's not going to be a lot. It probably won't hurt. I mean, really, can air catch up under there? Well, wrong, right? I mean, it, it, it ended up being my demise cost me hundreds more dollars than it would have called a wrecker and get the car towed over there. And, and, and the point of this illustration is the fact that when it comes to, our script, to approaching Scripture, when it comes to trusting the authority of God's Word, just a little bit of crack, a little bit of room for, you know, I'm going to let culture in on this, on this situation because maybe Scripture doesn't have it right or maybe I'm misunderstanding Scripture. As soon as we crack it open just a little bit, we're in danger of just letting it, it just disaster to happen. Disaster, just like it could have been disastrous as semi coming right at me. That's the destruction that can happen to God's church 
when we don't do things the way that he intended them. And so if you've read ahead or know anything about today's passage, if you're looking at it now, you know that this is a, an extremely controversial passage. The modern Western con uh, culture uses our text today and a few other ones like this as a prime example to show that the church of Jesus Christ is out of touch with society. It's, it's just out of touch. And so I pray as we humbly approach this difficult and controversial text that runs counter to the wisdom of our culture, we will see God's wisdom and we'll see his timeless truth, and ultimately, we'll trust him that he knows better than what culture says that should, we should do or the way that we should follow after. And our society is great at this, right? I mean, if you were watching any of the hear, hearings this past week, amazing. I, I didn't watch, but I, I followed along on some, on some websites that were giving me the updated information. But amazing the fact that one senator protested over an expression that the nominee used, and it wasn't a matter of but hours before Merriam-Webster changed the dictionary. Anybody see that? Raise your hand if you saw that. They changed the dictionary because they realized their definition was offensive and it wasn't politically correct. We don't want to do that as a church, okay? We're not going to run and change our theology because culture tells us it's offensive. We're going to stay true to God's Word. We're going to preach God's Word. And those who love God's Word will, in the end, trust Him even when things don't exactly make sense or seem to line up with culture. And so as today we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 7 through 15. And I really want us to keep in mind, we don't want to try to shape God to our opinions. We want to shape our opinions to honor, glorify God, and follow His Word. So 1 Timothy 2, 7 through 15. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we admit that sometimes the things that we feel or think or what seems like wise to us or what is wise to our culture runs contrary to what you say. And God, we know that you're the creator and sustainer of all life. And God, you breathe your word to us. And God, I pray that you will help us to be diligent to rightly divide your word as your scripture teaches in Timothy. But God, help us to never, ever run from the truth, even if it's controversial, even if it costs us in our culture that we live in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to pick up in verse 7. And naturally, verse 7 really went with what I talked about last week. 
But I think it was important to look at this verse in light of the conversation this week. Remember, he's writing a letter. Paul's writing a letter to Timothy. And so when you read a letter, you don't break it up into sections. You sit down and read the entire letter. And so it, it, while we want to uh, go through it verse by verse because all of this is inspired by God, it's important that we don't lose context here and everything that just flows together. So Paul starts off by stating his credentials, so to speak. Look at verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so those with a high view of Scripture, those who believe the truths of Scripture, they deal with these commands of Paul in the text, not just because the Apostle Paul, some guy in history, wrote these things, but we deal with them because they're the very breathed words of God. And we base our, not only our belief, base our entire eternity, our, our destination upon the truth of Scripture. Because we don't just arrive at truth on our own. We know that. We have to have some, some way to gain truth, to get truth. And apart from God's general revelation, we can't know the specifics of salvation. We can't know the specifics of how we are to follow Jesus and who is Jesus. We learn all that through His Word. And so we have a high view of Scripture, and we trust that these words are based upon the truth of the revealed Holy Spirit given to the Apostle Paul. Why do we believe that? Because we know that Jesus gave authority to his apostles, just like he did in the Old Testament with the prophets. He spoke through them. In these last days, Hebrews says, they spoke through Christ, and he speaks through the apostles, and they give us the words. These are people who knew Jesus, had a relationship with Jesus. We talked a great deal about that week one, if you want to go back, if you missed that, and watch that. So we build our lives upon the Word of God. But those who have a low view of Scripture, they just see Paul as this guy who's writing. He's, he's making this stuff up as he goes. He's dealing with these situations. Oh, i got to come up with something to help with this. So here we go. I'm going to send this over to this church and write that. And, and, and so basically the world says, Paul, he's a sexist. He doesn't like women. He's creating Christianity. And we don't need to put any validity in the things that he writes. There's many churches today that believe that. They don't even think that Paul is credible and we should trust his words. What do you do in church? I don't know what they do in church. It, you know, if you don't have the authority of God's word, what are you talking about? But Paul says he was appointed, appointed by God to make public proclamations for Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. He was appointed by God, the scripture says. He was called by Jesus himself, and he's not to air his own opinions. He's not to share what he thinks is the right thing, but he's to speak the very words of God. He uses in other books and other letters, speak the very oracles, the very words of God. And so as we look at this text, we have to look at how we receive verses 11 and 12 is based upon what we do with some of the other things that are written here in this passage, which point all the way back to Genesis, to the original intent, the creation and the fall. And my friend Dallas Burke will appreciate this here on the front row. He loves Genesis. And he said this before, and I've read this before other places, that if you compromise in Genesis, you might as well compromise the entire Bible. Because if, if you give in in Genesis, then everything falls apart. And so you can't take and leave the parts that you don't like. And so the Genesis account, Paul builds his argument for the command in verses 11 and 12 based upon the original creation of the fall. So let's look at the command, verse 11 and 12. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So before we go back and look at the entire passage verse by verse, 
I want to, to take Paul's argument, what he's doing here specifically, and how he's dealing with this, and how he's saying that this is the case. It's not just something that's unique to Ephesus. It's not unique to this situation. But this is universally applied. It's not something that I'm just reacting to because of what's going on there in your church. So is Paul picking on women? I'm sure that Paul doesn't want anyone to usurp the authority of a teacher or an elder, right? He wouldn't want man or woman to do that. So, so he's, he, why is he saying this toward women directly? And why does he, when he says, I don't want a woman to teach or exercise authority, he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Is that one thing or two things? We're going to see that. But it's important as we look at this, that we take this and look at these words and understand what Paul is trying to get at here. And so a little bit of background, even though Paul is writing universally here toward all churches at all times, he's reacting to a specific situation that's come up in Ephesus in this church. That's why that he's talking to them and writing these things to Timothy. So something's going on. There's a background here. We've talked about the false teachers. We've talked about how people are distorting the truth. They're not focusing on the main thing. But we know from reading through the book of uh, 1 Timothy that there's issues in the church specifically with women and some things that are going on there. And in chapter 5, and if you follow along in the church app, I've put a lot of these references there that you can just click on and look at them because I don't have time to show everyone and read everyone. But in chapter 5, he deals with these women who are causing this trouble. And in verse 6 of chapter 5, he's dealing specifically with widows who are living a very worldly, immoral, ungodly life. And if you skip down to verse 13... He says these women are being busybodies. They're just going from house to house. They're causing discord. They're causing drama. They're gossiping and slandering. And then verse 15, he goes to far, so far even say these women in the church have turned away from Jesus and are obeying Satan. They've turned from Jesus, verse five, 15 of chapter 5, and are obeying Satan. And so these are professing Christians, professing women in the church and then here in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, we see that there's some problems going on, uh, specifically that he addresses here. He says, he says, likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in reputable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair. And you may be thinking, braided hair? What? Really? What's the, what's the deal with that? Well, that carried a strong cultural context during this time, which showed promiscuity. It showed a life of, of luxury. It was really a, a, about setting themselves up as, look at me, check me out. And it was so anti the gospel because it would turn to be about these women being seductive, prideful, and glorifying themselves rather than glorifying God in their dress and their behavior. And so he in no way is teaching that it's a sin to dress yourself to look nice. It's not a sin to uh, wear things that, that, are, that, that look, make you look good or have appeal. But obviously it crosses a line when it has prideful intentions. And your goal is, you know what, I want people to turn their head and check me out versus to glorify God. So in the church, you had people who were drawing attention to themselves. Look at me versus the whole purpose of church was look at Jesus Christ. And so the women in the church in Ephesus we're putting the very reputation of Christ and the church at stake and the gospel at stake for their own selfish reasons. And so the reason for submission, Paul points to two things. He points to the order of creation and he points to the order of the fall. Look at verse 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became 
a transgressor. So he points to the order of creation, which is important because I'm not going to have time today to go through and refute every argument for what I'm going to say here today. There's many, many arguments and, and debates and other opinions written on this matter. And I've read a lot of them, even if I don't talk about them today. And if you have questions specifically, if you've been taught certain things, or you've read something and you want to talk about it, I would love to set up an appointment to spend time with you talking through some of the different arguments that are out there and why that I don't conclude that they have validity to them. But, but one of the arguments is that, the, that the Jesus' um, command and Paul's command here to, for the women to remain in submission and these type of arguments are based upon the fact that, hey, these things happened after the fall, after sin. So God's perfect creation, he did not intend for this to, to be the case. Now, while some of that may be true, uh, the, the fact here that Paul points to the order of creation predates sin. So he says Adam was first formed and then Eve. And so he points to that for the purpose of stating clearly that God had a design and a method behind the fact that he created Adam first. Now, let's say a couple things here that are important to say. First of all, man and woman were both created in God's image. In fact, Genesis 127 clearly says it. It says, a beautiful summary statement of, of human creation, he says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God created both in his image that implies equal worth. So this is not about worth here. It's about roles. It's about what God intended for ultimately for us to be able to point to Jesus in the best way possible. And so 1 Timothy 2 has nothing to do about value. It has to do about the roles of men and women. God created men and women with complementary roles. And we talked about this a lot back in Corinthians, if you were here. Men and women have different and distinct roles in the home and in the church. They have distinct and different roles in the home and in the church. Now, let's be clear on one thing here. The stuff that we're reading today and, and the things that are being written today, you can't pick this up and apply it to your female boss at work, okay? It doesn't, you can't say, well, she's a woman, so man, I'm, I'm in charge ultimately, I'm in control. Well, have that attitude, you'll lose your job very quickly, and you're definitely stretching the text beyond what is there. I think specifically it's speaking toward the home and to the church. Man was created with a role that complements a woman, and the woman was created with a role that complements the man in the home and in the church. And all this was by God's good design. And our society, we know, is working overtime right now to remove any kind of gender distinctions and any kind of differences that exist. And we know that gender theory, if you had gender theory in college or sociology in college, you got a steady dose of this because it's a very secular mindset that says, basically, the only difference between men and women is on a physical level. In other words, we all have exactly the same capacities. We're exactly alike, except for reproductive functions, all right? If you're married, I don't know how that anyone would actually come to that conclusion, because we know I, Michelle has incredible strengths that I don't have. I have strengths that she doesn't have. And, and when we're working in harmony with one another in the way that God intended as me as the spiritual leader in the home, her as the spiritual helper in the home, 
it, it just is beautiful in the way that it works in the way that God intended. But when we begin to buy into culture and think that these distinctions are all just society's way of, of, of constructing things and it really doesn't go back to God's design, then we're headed for disaster. Not only in theory, we're headed for disaster in our homes and in our churches and in our society. So when God's Word is our guide, understanding this will bring joy and unity of purpose and you'll do what God has intended in a church and in your home, glorifying God, pointing people to Jesus. And I think what a beautiful example that I love to use when talking about gender roles and how this is not about somebody being better than the other person or having more value than the other person. I like to point back to, to Jesus and his role within the Trinity. In fact, I use this verse a lot for other things, regardless of speaking of this subject matter where Jesus says in five, uh, John 5, 19, he says, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So Jesus says, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. Is Jesus less valuable than the Father? Absolutely not. But he says, I only act when the Father tells me to act. Is any less God than God the Father? Absolutely not. The Son is fully God and completely God, just like the Father and the Spirit. Yet the Father and the Son have different roles. The Son submits to the Father, and the Father directs the Son. And the Son doesn't complain, I've got to submit to my Father again? Come on, give me a break. I'm God too. I should be able to make these decisions on my own. No, He doesn't do that. And you don't see the Father dominating over the Son. It's just a perfect illustration of the harmony that should exist. And different roles in the Trinity, they have equal value, and it's this beautiful harmony that happens there. So in the same way, God has designed men and women with equal dignity and complementary roles. And the term in theology, I'll just throw this out there for you to those who want to study more and want to learn, it's called complementarianism. Complementarianism, it means that something that com completes or makes perfect either of two parts or things needed to complete the whole, counterparts. And so that's the idea here. It, they're working in conjunction to fulfill a purpose. And so let's recognize the obvious, though, in this matter. Has there been abuses over the, the, the centuries with regard to this? I've seen them in my lifetime. You've seen them in yours. Maybe some of you are experiencing these in your, house, in your own household, and so it's easy for you just to throw all this out. Like, this can't be right because you live in a situation where somebody is way overstepping their bounds and their roles that God has given them. They've taken headship to mean dictatorship, and they turn uh, uh, this complementarianism into something that would be more traditionalism, so to speak. What do I mean by that? I mean that a guy sits back in his lazy chair with his remote in his hand. He's like, I ain't changing no diaper. God didn't tell me to change a diaper. Right? Okay. Wrong. All right? That's not Scripture. That's not what the Bible is teaching here. We're not talking about traditional things. Nobody's trying to, women, to make you into Joan Cleaver. Has there been times when society has tried to do that? Absolutely. These things have been abused so many times, but it's not a result of God's design. Hear this. It's not a result of God's design. It's a result of our own sinfulness. It's a result of our own sinfulness. Our sinfulness causes us to be proud and selfish in every area of life. And if we can walk on or take advantage of someone, more than likely, we're going to do it at some point or another, right? Because the DNA of sin is selfishness. It's about me. I want you to serve me. I want my way. 
And so it doesn't matter if you're male or female. We all have that tendency to make it about us. And sinfulness causes fear. It causes us to exclude and mistreat others who are different than we are. And we can't allow that to happen. We have to see God's design, not through our lens and our culture, but we have to see it through God's Word. So it's sinfulness that results in unfair treatment of one another. And the root cause of gender inequity, in a meaningful sense of the word, is sin. That is the, that's what, why we get what we get so much in the history of the church. And so, again, be careful that you don't ascribe to things things that you enjoy and like to do and the way you treat your spouse as being part of your right or your role when it's not truly your right or your role. And so the purpose, again, I think through all this, we have to keep in mind what our purpose is. Because we're going to fight for our rights as long as we don't see what our purpose is. Now get this, and I know it's Fall Break Sunday, you're here, I'm pretty much probably speaking to the choir for the most part, all right? You're on board with this. But what's the purpose of your marriage? You know what Ephesians talks about. The purpose of your marriage is to point people to Jesus Christ, the way that God loves the church. And so when your marriage is in harmony and in unity, and these roles are working the right way, it's a beautiful picture to our society and to our culture of what our faith is all about, what Jesus is all about. But when a godly marriage is constantly in combat with one another, in fighting for your rights, in arguing over everything instead of giving in and submitting, it doesn't exemplify Jesus in any way, shape, or form. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And so you, you want me to show you a loving husband? I'll show you a, a serving husband. You want to see a loving wife? I'm going to show you a serving wife. One who says, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, I'm the man, hear me roar, or the woman who buys into culture's concepts of this and, and push back and fight on every issue because I'm not going to have anybody tell me what to do. No way. That's, that's not going to happen. You say, how does that bring any glory to Jesus whatsoever? I just love Galatians 2.20 because it really sums up really what we're all about. I've been crucified with Christ. If you don't know this verse, memorize this verse. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I no longer live. I don't have to fight for my, my way. Even as the godly husband and leader of the home, I don't fight for my way just because I think it's the right thing. I fight for it because I think it's God's thing. It's the right thing because it's what God wants as a picture of us being an example to this world of what, a church, what, what his children should be like and what the church should be like. And so it's not just about getting my way because I'm the man. It's about submitting to show people Jesus. And if you change that mindset, if you're in a home where it is more traditionalism, if the, if men, if you begin to change that, it's going to look totally different. People will see your marriage, with, it'll have joy, and it'll have celebration of the gospel. And ladies, when you begin to see that you don't have to fight against your husband, you don't have to prove who you are, or you're just as good, that's not the issue. The issue is not equality. The issue is God's role. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I live in the body, 
This life you live in the body in your marriage, you live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Galatians 2.20. And so, back to Paul's, again, his argument for what he's making here, verses 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So let's walk through some points on this. First, he says man was created first. Man, uh, Adam was given the responsibility to lead and to protect. And then he says Eve was deceived. The order and design that God gave this marriage was reversed. From the text, if, if you had a ch- have a chance later on or even now to look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, you see that it appears that Adam and Eve were both present. They were both there when all this was happening. And so there's this sense for sure where Adam was deceived too. And Scripture even talks about it in other places that Adam was deceived. So it's not showing greater gullibility on the part of the woman over the man. Adam, I mean, he, he, he totally neglected his authority and his, where he should have been there to protect his wife. And Satan deceived them into switching places is what happened here. That, that picture it like this. This might be a help, you, help you. Let's pretend that a general is driving his Jeep. And he's got a colonel next to him in in, in the passenger seat. And they pull up on a situation that's completely out of control. And the colonel, without even consulting the general, asking the general anything, he jumps out, runs up, and begins to demand and dictate commands before the general even has a chance to get out of the Jeep. And that's what the picture I like in this passage that we see is that Eve has usurped the authority of her husband. Satan undermined the order of God's creation. Adam failed in his leadership, and Eve was very quick and eager to step into that position and make the decision in the place of her husband. And so I believe that's the intent of what Paul is getting at here as he draws back to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall and the creation in the fall and the argument, how he's using this to support his argument. And so it's universal. So now let's go back to verse 8. We're going to quickly run through the rest of this passage in light of the reasons behind it. So verse 8, he says, I desire then that in every place the men, he's specifically talking about men here, should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So Paul returns back to the discussion that he started back in verse 1 of chapter 2 when he said, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Remember what we talked about. We talked about how that the church was excluding people thinking that if you weren't this way or on board with this or exactly this mindset or believe this exact, this exact thing that we're teaching, then you're out. You, you can't know Jesus. You can't be saved. You're excluded. And so they were saying not all people could be saved. Not all people could become redeemed by Jesus. And in fact, there was no reason even to pray for these people. There's no reason perhaps to even share the gospel with them. And so he begins to speak to men, and I think probably men in leadership in the church, and who are fighting and quarreling, and we know there's all this controversy that's going on. And he's saying, look, you don't need to be fighting of anything. Prayer should be the last thing that should bring you to be fighting and quarreling and arguing. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray, lifting up holy hands. And the, and the picture here, which goes back to the Old Testament times, is this idea of Uh, extending your hands, praying over your church, praying over your home, over a congregation. And so he's saying, here is what I want you to do, men. I want you to lead in prayer. I want you to pray for the body. I want you to lift up the body. And he says, don't be fighting and arguing. Pray. Do what you're called to do. Lead. And remember, he's talking in public worship here. He's talking about the church gathering, assembling together. 
And he says in the situation, verse 9, he says, likewise, also the women should not adorn themselves in, or should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And so it goes back again to what we talked about back in verse 4. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so this letter he's writing to Timothy, he's saying, why are we so off base here? God wants everybody to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I want the gospel to go out to everyone. I want people to know. And you're excluding. Guys, you're only praying for those who you think deserve to be prayed for. God loves everyone. He wants everyone to come to faith. And you're excluding. And women, what are you doing? You're turning this all about you, not about God and not about the gospel. Here you come to church like it's a fashion show. You're walking in wanting people to say, look at me. Not look at Jesus. And so we, we, we see just a, a total disregard for why we're here in the first place. And, and so you have a lack of unity in the men. You have a lack of humility, a lack of modesty in the women. And then the key uh, is verse 12 of 10 of this. He says, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Look what he does. He says there's a contrast here between women who want it to be all about them, look at me, check me out, versus the women who are truly godly women who show it with their good works, with their actions, with their loving servant, uh, being a servant and loving the congregation, not with flashy externals, but with less noticeable good works. And then verse 11 and 12 again, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So I think as we lay down Genesis chapter 3 here, where it gets tough is practically how does this stuff play out? What is he talking about specifically, and how do we apply it in a, in a way that is fitting to a congregation like ours? Well, the historical ter interpretation, which I, don't, I think that everyone in here should agree with based upon Genesis chapter 3 and Paul's argument is that men are to do the authoritative public doctrinal instruction in a church and women are prohibited. We're going to see this in chapter in, in, in the next chapter in 1 Timothy. Women are prohibited from being elders within the church. So let me say that again. Men are to do the authoritative public doctrinal instruction in the church and women are prohibited from being elders within the church. And like I said, Paul will discuss eldership and selecting men to be part of those positions. But God has ordained only men to serve in the positions of spiritual teaching with authority. This is not because men are necessarily better teachers. It's not necessarily because it's not because women we know are less intelligent than men or because they're inferior in any way, which is definitely not the case. It's simply God's design for the way the church should function. Just like the Trinity, there's roles. And based upon other New Testament passages of Scripture, some people disagree with this. Many people, there's some debate over it. I think it seems clear to me. Verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. I think that is one command, not two. I don't think it's, I do not permit a woman to teach, break, or I don't per permit a woman to exercise authority over a man, break. I think it's one command. 
And I think the reason, um, I believe the reason is very good. We go to the Bible, we compare Scripture to Scripture. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that the women were praying and prophesying within the church. They were speaking. We talked about this back in Corinthians. And Paul doesn't correct them. And in fact, prophesying, if you understand prophecy, in, particularly in the early church, was where God would give a word to someone, and then the elders or the leadership of the church would check it to be sure if it was true. So these women, if you want to take verse 11 completely literal, a woman is to be quiet and learn in submission. All right? We don't see that in, in Corinth. We see that women were speaking, but they were speaking under the authority of the elders. The elders would check it. So thus, when Paul calls for the woman to be quiet, he means quiet with respect to authoritative teaching responsibilities in the assembled church. And we also know that this is definitely not a prohibition against women teaching in general, because we find several cases in the New Testament, one being where Priscilla and Aquila, a couple within the church who took in a guy named Apollos and explained the truths of Scripture to him. And so they provided him with discipleship. And also we see in Titus that women are to train and teach the younger women, older women teaching the younger women. So this is not to say that a woman cannot teach. It's just saying that a woman cannot teach in the assembly where men and women are both present. They can't do it in an authoritative fashion. So the bottom line, what is being prohibited is the authoritative teaching by a woman in the church. The authoritative teaching by a woman in the church. All right. So to be a little bit provocative, if you read my email on Friday, I titled the sermon, Women Worship, uh, women worship in War Over Beth Moore, right? Because if you're Following along with what's going on in the Christian community, some of you may have seen that John MacArthur called out Beth Moore in a way that really showed no dignity to her, regardless of his opinions. And I, th I think later backtracked on that. But many of you know who Beth Moore is. She's a teacher. Uh, I've heard her speak before at Passion. Um, she's, she's incredible with giving God's truth. And there's much debate, particularly in the Southern Baptist churches, should she be allowed to preach and teach to mixed audiences? And as you can imagine, with anything, there's much disagreement over this. Well, I told Chip this morning, I was like, all right, you got to tell me where I land on this, if it's a good place. Here, here, here's what I feel, okay? I feel like that sometimes we are way too eager to, in our modern day and age, where we can find any information from any church across this world, and we grab this and we grab that, and we're so interested to hear what John MacArthur or John Piper or this guy or that guy says on something and sometimes we forsake the wisdom of our own local assembly and the eldership that God has put into place. And, and one thing that I, and I don't, I haven't really followed this Beth Moore situation completely. And so she may have said other things past this, but I read this quote and she said, I will indeed, indeed and speak occasionally in services on Sunday when asked by a church, depending upon the occasion and the pastor's request. So she's saying, if the pastor and the local body says, we'd like for you to speak, I will speak. And so where can I, fall, I kind of fall on this matter, again, back to, is the person speaking with authority? Are they speaking with teaching doctrine? Are they teaching us how to live out the truths of Scripture in a way that has responsibility? I would say, just like in your home, follow me on this, in your home, headship and leadership when done in a Christ-like way, may look different between your home and your home. It plays out differently. The truths are the same. The timeless truth exists. The man should be the spiritual lead and the head of the household. 
but how that actually flushes out and plays out in both in a couple that both are seeking God with all their heart, there's nuances, there's slight differences there. And I would say the same is for the church. If a church body, if an elder-led church, which is the biblical way of doing church, if the elders of a church are praying and seeking God, and there's no debate on what we just talked about here, that we understand that authoritatively that God has put the elders in place, and there's no question about that. Then I think each, each church makes a decision on a Beth Moore situation. And we don't throw that off to let John MacArthur or John Piper make the decision for us. Our elders, seeking God, make that decision. And that's why, if you've been at Grace for a while, there's stood up here in front of our church a lady named Debbie Friley, who shared and talked and opened Scripture. There's also a lady who we support named Jane Brinkerhoff, who's a single lady who's amazing, uh, missionary in Japan, who stood here and, and has spoken on Sunday morning. And so I don't think this is to say that this is sacred turf all the time completely. It's the authority of God's Word going out by the preacher of God's Word and the elders in this church body, and that is what is to be respected and observed. And so Grace Church, where our elders land, is the fact that men, no question, men should be the elders of the church. Men should be teaching the, with the authority of the church. And when it comes to K-Group, uh, and you're sitting around in a circle, and most, almost every one of our groups are led by an elder or a pastor, we don't say, uh, you know, women don't give your opinion on that. Your opinion don't matter. No. We want you to express your opinions. And I think scripturally, you can um, state, okay, here's what I believe this passage is teaching in a way that still is under the authority of the elder who's there with you. But what happens is so many times it's, I don't want God's way. I like it my way. I, I, I'm here to glorify me, not to glorify God. And so I care more about me having my freedom and me having my rights than God, the way that he lined this up and the way the church should operate and the roles that he's given each of us. And so, that's the way we operate. That's the way that I believe the Bible teaches. Now, in the last minute here, the most difficult verse, okay? The most difficult verse, verse 15. Let's look at verse 13, 14, and 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, I'm going to say right off the bat, this is probably, to me, the toughest verse in all of Scripture to, to figure out exactly what Paul is getting at here, the argument that he's made. And you can read a bunch of different people, you can listen to a bunch of different pastors, and they all have their opinions, all right? So I'm going to humbly state what I feel like that Paul is getting at here. He is not advocating that women are eternally saved from sin through childbearing, or that they maintain their salvation by having babies, both of which are clear contradictions of the New Testament teaching that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul is teaching that even though a woman bears the stigma of being the initial instrument who led humanity into sin, it is the woman through childbearing who may be preserved or freed from that stigma by raising a generation of godly children in childbearing. Mothers have a unique bond and intimacy with their children. They spend far more time with them than new fathers, and they have a far greater influence into their lives at a certain level that is unique 
and they have a responsibility and opportunity to raise and to lead godly children. And so I think that's what Paul may be getting at here, that, that through childbearing, through offspring. Now, one thing we know is definitely not true is that you're unspiritual or you can't be saved if you don't have children. Or Because Paul writes to, um, in Corinthians, he, he writes and says that it's not the case that all women should even get married. So if you're not going to get married, for sure you're not going to be having children. So the point Paul isn't making is this is a universal application for everyone. And so, like I said, I... I'm open to disagreement on that one. If you have a different point of view, don't come and talk to me about that, okay? That one, I will g- give you ground and leeway and say, you know, whatever. But, but on the other issues, I feel like they're firmly rooted in Genesis there, and there's really not much wiggle room. So head, heart, and hands in closing. Head, trust God's word. Trust his word. If you don't trust his word, if you're not in God's word, listen to this, men or women, either one, you're going to default to being prideful and all about you. If you trust God's word, you'll be humble, you'll take your leadership roles in a godly way, and you'll execute those in a godly way. If you're not in God's word, if you're not seeking his face, I promise you, you're not going to do anything right in the home, or very little right. You must stay humbly in the word of God and let his word speak to you, because as we play this stuff out in the homes, there's so many opportunities for missteps and to say things and do things and undermine the authority of our husbands or wives. And then Galatians 2.20, the heart. I've been crucified with Christ. Memorize that verse. Know that verse. Let that verse sink in. That's our purpose. That's what we're about. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then hands, very practically. Build your marriage. Build your life. Build the church upon God's word, not upon your feelings. Build it upon him, his revealed truth. And I think most of you in here would say, I'm I'm on board with that. But does your life show that you're on board with that? Are you diligently seeking out each day his mercies that are new every morning? Are you asking him to give you guidance as you deal with your spouse, your children, your coworkers, so that you can live in a way that Christ has revealed, not for your own selfish purposes? Where do you spend your time? Is it scrolling Facebook in the mornings or is it in God's word in the morning? What's your priority? Get in God's word. Trust his word. Live by his word. His words are life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we know culturally this is uh, something that would be mocked and laughed at, ridiculed, and maybe soon be illegal to even talk in this way. But God, we are not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation. We're not ashamed of Jesus. And we want our households and our church to point people clearly to Him, to Him crucified. And God, that all comes back to a trust in Your Word. And God, may we be a church that always, always looks to Your Word first, before our feelings, before the culture, before what seems right, because we know that always leads to destruction. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.